Good morning, Bethel. So uh, a few years ago, uh, I read a book. It's by a, a man named Christopher McDougall. It's called Born to Run, a hidden tribe, super athletes, and the greatest race the world has never seen. I don't know if you've heard of that book. Um, it was quite popular uh, several years ago. Uh, but the, the story that McDougall writes in that book, he says, began with a five-word question. It was this, how come my foot hurts? Like the experience of a lot of runners, he had pain in his foot and he sought help. Uh, and possibly like the experience again of a lot of runners, he was advised to do something else, to find another way to get his exercise, another uh, uh, method uh, of exercise that would be better for his body. Uh, well, uh, he embarked on a, a journey, and as he embarked on this journey, uh, he, he, he learned a few things. One was he learned a new way to run that enabled him to do so uh, pain-free and, and, and with joy. It was a form of running that had him among other things, avoid striking the ground with his heel when he would hit the ground. Uh, now, I won't bore you with the other details. I could probably talk your ear off, um, but I will spare you of that this morning. But he learned a new running form that allowed him to run pain-free, and it was a form of running that he witnessed in runners from a tribe of people called the Terahumara uh, who could run long distances at a time. By long distances, think like 50-plus miles at a time without injury. Now, I'm sure the running form and the methods that McDougall describes in that book are debated, uh, and I'm not going to wade into that now. In fact, I shouldn't. I'm not a doctor. Um, but here's my point. He ran one way, and it led to injury and pain, but he learned a new way to run, and for him, it led to greater health and joy. Now, most of us probably can't identify directly with that. I'm sure there aren't many of us who are going out in the mornings and running 50 milers. Um, but we know this to be true uh, in daily life and physical activity, I think. There's a way to do things that might be quicker, uh, easier, or that might feel more natural to us, but they could lead to injury, like a classic is lifting things with your back. And then there's a way to do things with the right form or technique that promote health and prevent pain, like lifting things with your legs instead of your back. Wisdom would have us leave those unhealthy ways behind and move on with proper form. Well, this morning we're looking at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 24. And here the Apostle Paul describes two ways of walking. And this is much, much more serious than the way you run or the way you pick things up. One way is a walk or a way of living that's infinitely worse than improper form that leads to foot pain or a sore back or weak knees. It's the pathway of futility, alienated from the life of God, characterized by sin and rebellion against the Lord. And it's a way of life that Paul's audience, the saints in Ephesus, must leave behind. The other way is the school of Christ. Paul wants these saints who have been made new in Jesus to walk in light of who they are, no longer as unbelievers alienated from God, living in rebellion against him, but as those 
who have, by God's grace, put off the old self and put on the new. So two different ways of walking. In futility, alienated from the life of God, and in the school of Christ. So let's look at each one of those. First, in futility, alienated from the life of God, we'll look at verses 17 to 19 of Ephesians 4 here. Uh, Before we do, uh, by this point in Ephesians, Paul has already referenced his reader's walk, or you might say way of living, three times. The first is in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The saints in Ephesus once walked in their trespasses and sins. They were spiritually dead, but no longer. God graciously made these folks alive together with Christ. By grace, he saved them through faith in Jesus, not by their works. And now, made alive in Christ, Paul tells them in Ephesians 2.10, for we are his, that's God's, workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And similarly, closer to our text this morning, in chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So do you see the two ways of walking here? One, dead, walking in trespasses and sins away from God. The other is, by God's grace, alive in Christ, walking in the good works that God has graciously prepared, uh, prepared for them, walking in a manner of the calling, uh, in a manner worthy of the calling to which they've graciously been called. Now, in chapter 4, Paul returns to this theme, and he begins in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord. Notice the force of that appeal. Now this I say and testify in the Lord. Paul's writing here to them with the greatest of authority. And his command to them is this, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. The recipients of Paul's letter, they they are primarily Gentiles or non-Jewish Christians. They're alive in Christ, yes, but They weren't always alive in Christ. There was a time when they lived like the culture around them. They reflected the culture around them, like Gentile unbelievers who are dead in their sins and living like it. So Paul's saying to these mostly Gentile believers in this letter, no longer. They must no longer live like the Gentiles around them who don't know Jesus. And how do these Gentiles live? 
Well, over the next few verses, Paul gives us a description of it. And it's not a pretty picture. It's a life of futility, alienated from God, spiraling downward in sin and rebellion. So look again at verse 17. Paul says, Now this I say in testifying the Lord, that you, these Gentile or non-Jewish Christians, must no longer walk as the Gentiles, non-Jewish unbelievers, do in the futility of their minds. That word futility, it, mean, it means something along the lines of worthless or empty. It could possibly even signify idolatry here. These persons are without God and their thinking shows it. Imagine spending loads and loads and loads of time working out the toughest of math problems only to find out that you're actually supposed to be focusing on an entirely different subject. Or imagine devoting your life's work to a particular field of study only to find out in the end that it was completely unnecessary. That's kind of like what's going on in verse 17, only what Paul describes is much more tragic. In the very worst sense, these folks miss what really matters. They miss what's true. They miss what could really satisfy their soul. Their thinking is empty. It's worthless. It's purposeless. It's futile. And he goes on in verse 18. They, again, Gentile, non-Christians, are darkened in their understanding. This could explain why these individuals walk in the futility of their minds. They live in the universe created by God, but when it comes to their understanding, they are in a tightly sealed, windowless room with the lights turned off. For the Christian, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ but not so here. These persons, Paul explains in verse 18, are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. That's the worst place to be, isn't it? It's God who gives light and meaning and life and life eternal, but these folks are separated from him. They're cut off without hope, and without God. And Paul says, why? In verse 18, he says, because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Don't miss how pivotal that is. The Gentiles' hard hearts are the heart of the problem. Their hardness of heart, their opposition to God, their stubborn rebellion against him and refusal of him led to the ignorance that is in them. John Piper puts it like this. He says, the hardness is deeper than ignorance. And therefore, my ignorance of spiritual things, notice that it's ignorance of spiritual things that's in view here, not merely ignorance of facts or, or some kind of deficiency in their intellectual ability, and therefore, my ignorance of spiritual things is not innocent. It is evil. It is blameworthy because it comes not from lack of truth or evidence, but from a deep hardness in my heart against God. 
That's a grim picture, right? Sadly, it's not done. Paul continues in verse 19, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now, if you play guitar or if you rock climb or if you do something where you're working regularly with your hands, you know that calluses on your fingers or on your hands can be a good thing. And why is that? Because they, they, they deaden us to the, to the pain that we might feel from those activities. When you first start learning to play guitar, it hurts a little bit on your fingers as you're pressing down on the strings. When you first start to, to climb, it can hurt a little bit. You need to build up the calluses on your hands uh, and, and, and anything dealing with your hands where you need to build up calluses. But here in this text, callous is not a good thing. These Gentiles have become insensitive to the sting and shame and conviction that comes from sinning against God, from breaking his commands. And so what's the result? Having become insensitive to this, they've given themselves up to sensuality. That's a term that can refer to sexual sin, but here it probably means more, broader sin. They've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. It's like a lust for more. So taken in total, verses 17 to 19 are a terrible picture of the downward spiral of sin. John Stott describes it like this. He says, if we put Paul's expressions together, noting carefully their logical connections, he seems to be depicting the terrible downward path of evil, which begins with an obstinate rejection of God's known truth. First comes their hardness of heart, then their ignorance being darkened in their understanding. Next, and consequently, they are alienated from the life of God since he turns away from them until finally, they have become callous and have given themselves, given themselves up to licentiousness, greedy to practice every kind of uncleanness. Thus, hardness of heart leads first to darkness of mind, then to deadness of soul under the judgment of God, and finally to recklessness of life. Having lost all sensitivity, people lose all self-control. That is a, is a bleak picture. That is a hard word uh, to be sure. So how are we supposed to respond to this? What should we do? Well, if you're with us this morning or if you're watching online and if you aren't following Jesus, if you haven't turned away from your sin and rebellion against God and trusted Jesus to save you, this is really bad news. And why? Because it describes at least to some degree the way every single person apart from Christ is walking. Now, you may not be as far down that downward spiral of sin as the next person, but what everyone who is not alive in Christ has in common is alienation from God and rebellion toward him, spiritual deadness, darkness, futility in their minds. Now, I said that's bad news, but it's only bad in the sense that 
it's bad news if I warn you that you are getting ready to drive off a cliff. So in other words, yes, this is a hard word. It is bad news in that sense. But it's intended to bring about a good result, to save your life. You see, God doesn't shy away from telling us the truth about ourselves. He loves us enough to give us an honest assessment, as painful as it may be to hear. But know this. He also provided the remedy for the mess we've made. This is why Jesus came, to save sinners. He lived a life of perfect obedience to God where you and I have failed. He died a sacrificial death on the cross, taking on himself the just punishment of everyone who would trust him for salvation. And three days later, God raised him from the dead in triumph and triumph and victory, approving of his sacrifice. And because of what Jesus has accomplished, because of what he did, there's a good promise on the other side of this bad news. That is, if you will turn away from your rebellion against God, if you will forsake that way of walking and instead embrace Jesus, trust him to forgive you and follow him, God will save you. He will make you clean. He will bring you into the family of faith. Tim Keller sums this up beautifully, I think. He says, the gospel says, you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, but more accepted and loved than you ever dared hope. So that's really good news today. So if you aren't following Jesus, let me encourage you, turn from your sin and believe the gospel. Embrace Jesus today. You don't have to clean up your act before you come to him. In fact, don't try. Trying to clean up your act, trying to get yourself right before you come to Jesus for salvation will actually ensure that you don't get Jesus. He doesn't want your works. They're not gonna help you. He wants you to feel your need for him and to come to him with empty hands, with your arms, like with your weapons laid down. He wants you to embrace him and the salvation that he offers. He wants you to follow him as your king, as the Lord of your life. So don't try to clean up your act. Come as you are. Confess your sin to him and ask him to forgive you and save you. He will. He is willing and he is able. That can happen today. That can happen right now. So if you are with us and you aren't following Jesus, please turn to him in faith today. Embrace him as your savior and king. Now, if you are here today and you are following Jesus, I think we should respond to this maybe in many ways, but I'll give you two. First, I think we should respond to this with humility and thankfulness. Let's not forget that these verses describe what was once true of us. Were it not for God's grace, we'd still be here. We'd be separated from God, alienated from the life of God, dead in our sin with hard, calloused hearts in a downward spiral of sin. But because of God's grace and his rich mercy toward us in Christ, it's not so. We've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus. And so because of this, because of who we were and who we now are, the last thing 
that we should ever be as Christians is prideful. The last thing that we should ever be as Christians is ungrateful. Consider what God has done for us. He has done great things for you and me. And second, we should respond to this with obedience. Remember, Paul's writing to Christians here, and he's commanding them to no longer walk like the Gentiles. The same is true for us. We must no longer walk in the futility of our minds. Instead, we must continue walking, and this brings us to our second point, in the school of Christ. This is verses 20 to 24 of Ephesians 4. So Paul, he's just given a bleak picture of the way Gentiles are walking, and his point's clear. These Christians once walked in that way, but they must do so no longer. And why? Well, he reminds them in verses 20 and 21, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. By God's grace, these saints have enrolled in the school of Christ. They learned him. Daryl Bach explains what this means. To learn Christ involves being affected by his person. The issue here is not only ideas, but also an approach to life. It means learning by example, reflective of the character Jesus reveals. This requires a deep personal connection to Jesus, living by the power and enablement provided by the Spirit. These believers learned Christ. They, Paul assumes, have heard about him. That phrase, heard about him, can be translated like that, heard about him, meaning that they heard about Christ, what he said, what he did. But that phrase can also be translated, heard him, because the, the preposition about isn't there in the original language. If that's the case, it means that when these Christians were taught about Christ, they heard Christ. They heard his voice. And finally, they were taught in him. I like the way John Stott puts it here. He says, that is to say, Jesus Christ, in addition to being the teacher and the teaching, was also the context, even the atmosphere within which the teaching was given. When Jesus Christ is at once the subject, the object, and the environment of the moral instruction being given, we may have confidence that it is truly Christian. So these believers learned Christ. They have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6 says. And, and they, were, they were taught as the truth is in Jesus to do three things. One, this is verse 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Two, this is verse 23, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And three, this is verse 24, to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Now, the putting off of the old self and the putting on of the new happened when these Christians embraced Jesus, when God raised them from spiritual death and made them alive in Christ. Like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, 
He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Or as Paul says in Colossians 3, 9 to 10, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So having embraced Jesus, they had put off the old self and put on the new, but that said, they must continue living in light of what God has done in them. They must continue to put off their old self. Why? Because as Paul says, it belongs to their former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Imagine having a wardrobe that's filled with old, dated, worn down clothes and being given a new wardrobe that is full of nice, clean, modern clothes, and then throwing all the old ones out in the trash. You get rid of them. Now imagine going back, changing your mind, and digging all those old clothes out of the garbage and wearing those instead of the new ones. That'd be crazy, right? I mean, some people, maybe we have attachments to our old clothes and we would actually do that, and so all analogies break down. But you get what I'm saying. That would be crazy. You have new clothes. Why would you dig in the garbage to get the old, worn-down ones? These believers have changed their spiritual clothes, so to speak, and there must be no going back. They've been made new. They were dead in their sin, but now they're alive in Christ, and they must continue living in light of it. They must put off their old selves. And two, they must be renewed in the spirit of their minds. Before they knew Christ, they walked in the futility of their minds and were darkened in their understanding. But now, renewal's called for. Paul emphasizes this in Romans 12, 2. There he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So an important question here is, how do you do that? How do you be renewed in the spirit of your mind? How do you accomplish that? Well, I think John Piper explains it well. He says it, he puts it like this. The answer is to fill the mind continually with truth about spiritual, eternal, heavenly reality. In 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18, Paul says, we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed every day. How? Answer, because we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul was renewed in the spirit of his mind by filling his mind with the unseen truths of eternity so that the loud, garish deceitfulness of this world was pushed out. These Christians must be renewed in the spirit of their minds, and they do this by looking to what is eternal. And perhaps we could elaborate. They do this by keeping their eyes on Jesus, 
by seeking God in his word, by communing with God in prayer. Again, these Christians had put off the old and put on the new when they trusted Jesus, when God made them alive in Christ, but they must keep walking in the school of Christ that they are a part of. And that means putting off their old selves. That means being renewed in the spirit of their minds. And that means, this is the third thing, putting on their new selves, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Once characterized by deceitful desires and sensuality and impurity, these believers have been made new, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. And they must, as we've said, continue living that out by God's grace. As Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the pattern of the Christian life, not just for Paul's mostly Gentile Christian audience, but for all believers back then and now. We were alienated from the life of God and on the hook for our sin and rebellion against him. But we learned Christ. We were recreated, made new. We put off the old self. We put on the new, not by any good works on our part, but solely by God's grace as a gift. And, and now, again, by grace, we must continue living out our identity as new creatures walking in the school of Christ, daily putting off the old self, being renewed in the spirit of our minds, and putting on the new self. So what exactly does that look like? Well, we already mentioned that we can experience the renewal of our minds by looking to things that are eternal, by keeping our eyes on Jesus, by seeking God's word, by seeking God in his word, by communing with him in prayer. To that, I think that we can add some specific things that we must put off and put on. And we can look uh, just right ahead to some things that Paul mentions later in this letter to the Ephesians. So we can, we should, we must replace falsehood with truth. Can, we should, we must replace theft with honest labor. We must replace corrupting talk with speech that builds up and gives grace to those who hear. We must replace bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander with kindness, forgiveness, and love. Broadly put, we must ask God to search our hearts, show us our sin, and enable us by his grace to put off our sin and put on instead Christ-like virtue. And let's be sure that we do this in the context of biblical community. We weren't meant to live the Christian life in isolation. We need each other. We need other believers to come alongside us, to encourage us, to challenge us, to rebuke us at times, to help us keep our eyes on Jesus. We can't do this by ourselves. 
You need me, I need you. That's one reason that we focus so much on community groups here. That's what they're for. So if you're not in a community group, I would encourage you to get in one. And, and if, you, if you are in a group, let me encourage you, take some time at your next group meeting to, to talk through this. Look at what Paul's saying in Ephesians 17 to 24 and look at some of the characteristics that he mentions afterward. The things that we must in Christ put off and put on and have an open discussion with one another. Where are you struggling? Where do you need, where do you need help? Where do you need accountability? Where do you need to, to trust God? Where do you need to walk in obedience? We need each other. And, and it's important to recognize here too that when we're talking about how we need to live in obedience, that we not make the mistake of thinking that we are living this way in order to earn God's favor, in order to earn righteousness. Remember, the order here is clear. These individuals, these Gentile Christians in this area, the ones to whom Paul is writing, they have been saved. They were dead in their sins and trespasses. It is God by his grace who made them alive with Christ. This was not by their works. This was not by their own doing. Now, Paul is telling them, he's commanding them to live in light of what God has done. They are obeying, not in order to earn righteousness, they are obeying because they have righteousness by God's grace. And this is a lifelong process. It's full of ups and downs. We know this to be true. When, when God saves us, he justifies us, meaning he declares us not guilty, but righteous instead. Because of Jesus's perfect life, sacrificial death and triumphant resurrection, all on our behalf, there is no more condemnation for us. The wrath that we had stored up for ourselves was taken care of, wiped away by Jesus on the cross. No more condemnation, no more separation from God. But we aren't immediately perfected, right? We know this to be true in our daily experience as we deal with sin. Perfection will surely come. It's guaranteed for the believer but not until Jesus returns and gives us glorified bodies never to sin again. So in the meantime, while we wait by God's grace, we must wage war on our sin, obeying what Paul commands in the Lord in this passage here. And when we do sin, let's be quick to repent, to turn away from it, to go to God and, and confess our sin to him and ask for forgiveness. And if we need to, go to other people, confess our sin and ask for their forgiveness. And let's be quick to get our eyes on Jesus, to trust him, to, to depend on him and him alone for our salvation. John Newton, who wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace, which we're going to sing in a moment, he shows us how to think in the right way here. Um, this, this quote has been such an encouragement to me. I hope it is to you. I've mentioned it before. I'm sure I'll probably mention it again. Um, he's, he puts it like this. I don't know that I've, I've, I've mentioned the full quote before, but here it is today. He says, I am not what I ought to be. Ah, how imperfect and deficient. I am not what I wish to be. I abhor what is evil, and I would cleave to what is good. I am not what I hope to be. Soon, soon shall I put off mortality and with mortality all sin and imperfection. Yet, though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, 
I can truly say, I am not what I once was. A slave to sin and Satan. I can heartily join with the apostle and acknowledge by the grace of God, I am what I am. This is a man who knows the struggle. This is a man who knows the fight. He's trusting Jesus. He knows that perfection is coming. He knows that he's not there yet. And along the, along the way, as he is walking in obedience, he is clinging to what's true. He's not what he's going to be one day. He's not who he wants to be one day. But praise God, he's not who he once was. And for those of us who are in Christ, may we know that. Let's not forget who we once were. We were, we were dead. The Bible doesn't mince words. Dead in our trespasses and sins. We were alienated from God. We were, Paul says, without hope. We were without God. Hard hearts, callous to our sin, in a downward spiral away from God. That's who we were. But that's not who we are any longer. God has shown us immeasurable grace in Christ. He has saved us. He has made us alive in Jesus. We've been made new. We once walked in the futility of our minds, alienated from God, dead in our sins. But by God's grace, we have been enrolled in the school of Christ. So let's put off the old, let's be renewed in the spirit of our minds, and let's put on the new, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. And again, if you were with us this morning, and if, if, this, doesn't, if this doesn't characterize you, if you aren't following Jesus, if you haven't yet been made alive in Christ, again, let me encourage you, let today be the day of salvation. Jesus is ready and he is willing to save you. In Hebrews 4.7, the author of Hebrews, he says this, um, today, quote, quoting the Psalm, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. If you are in Christ, in Christ, you've learned him. If you hear his voice today, if he's speaking to you, do not refuse him. Come to him. He is ready and willing and able to save. You can, you can get in on this life. You can get, on, get, get in on this. Get in on this life of grace and mercy in Christ, of relationship with God. And for those of us who are trusting in Jesus again, let's continue to walk on the pathway on which God has placed us in the school of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for what you have done. You have done great things for us. Thank you for sending Christ to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. He lived a life of perfect obedience to you where we failed. He died on the cross in our place for our sin. He rose from the dead in triumph and victory. Lord, we, 
we, we praise you for what Jesus has done and, and thank you, Lord, for making us alive to these truths, for giving us faith to see our sin, to see how ugly it is, to, to see our need, to see our rebellion against you. Thank you for showing us this and thank you for giving us faith to turn away from it and trust Jesus to save us and be our King and Lord. It is all of grace. And Lord, we praise you too that even the good works that you call us to walk in now, you have prepared beforehand for us. Just grace upon grace upon grace. Lord, thank you for what you have done. And, and I pray, Father, this morning that if anyone's here who doesn't know Jesus, that they would get in on this, that today would be the day of salvation, that they wouldn't harden their hearts, the voice of Jesus, but they would come to you uh, and receive salvation. And for those of us who are following Jesus, Father, help us. We, we, we need your help. We need your Spirit's enablement to walk this pathway faithfully, to put off our old self, to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, to put on the new self. Help us do this, Lord, by your Spirit's power for our good, for the good of our neighbors, for the good of our city, for the good of this world, for the glory of your name, and for Christ's sake. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.